Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. If you see a bird that gets attacked by a predator and gets away, it will immediately go under a rock shelf, under a bush, whatever, someplace protected. It will puff its feathers out and it will shake. Traditional healers have observed this and they call it, at least in Namibia, where where I was working at one point, they call it shaking medicine. The idea of shaking medicine is is trauma gets stored in the body and we need to loosen it up so that it passes through. There's something called trauma release exercises, TRE, that triggers a tremor, a shaking to move these feelings through. There's also some medical studies called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this says that all kinds of traumas get stored in the body and they don't just produce psychological, but also all sorts of physical problems as well. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame and I am your host. And today we are joined by Dr. Constance Scharf, who is an internationally recognized speaker and author on the topics of addiction and trauma recovery and mental health. She is the founder of the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. She serves the Geffen Playhouse as a consultant for their Veterans Writing and Performance Workshop. In the past, she served Rock to Recovery, a music-based addiction and trauma treatment program as the VP of Business Development and Science and Research Chair and was Senior Addiction Research Fellow and Director of Addiction Research for Cliffside Malibu Addiction Treatment Center. She's the 2019 recipient of the St. Lawrence University's Saul Finestone Humanitarian Award, honoring her service to and advocacy for those suffering from mental illness, trauma, and addiction. Dr. Scharf writes about using complementary health and contemplative practices to improve treatment outcomes. Her latest award-winning book, Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation, written with Rock to Recovery founder Wes Gear, describes the impact songwriting and performance has on mental health. She is also co-author of the Amazon.com best-selling book, Ending Addiction for Good, and the award-winning poetry book, Meeting God at Midnight. At present, she is working on a memoir titled Becoming Beloved about healing from trauma. This is a fantastic episode, but I do want to offer a trigger warning. We are going to cover some topics such as childhood sexual trauma and incest. And so if these are difficult topics for you, I want to give you the heads up that we will be delving into them and to make sure you are in a good headspace before you listen. If you find that you are triggered by the episode, feel free to skip over the parts that are triggering or to reach out for support. Dr. Constance, as you heard, is incredibly accomplished and has done so much of her own work in order to heal her childhood trauma. There's a lot of fun and funny to Constance, and I hope you hear that alongside her trauma because she is much more than what happened to her. And many of us who've experienced childhood trauma are just that. We're much more than what happened to us. I also hope you get some of the little tips and tricks she has, including ways to alleviate physical symptoms of trauma, such as singing and even shaking therapies. I don't want to give too much away, but this was incredible. And there are so many complementary alternative therapies out there that can help us heal. And it's important that we know about them and we utilize everything available to us so that we can be the best that we can be. And importantly, feel the best that we can feel. So I won't give too much of the rest away. Constance does a great job of telling her story and I hope you enjoy this episode. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Constance Scharf. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. 
Oh, thank you, Ashley. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, likewise. So I want to get started, just dive right into your background because you have done a whole lot of really incredible stuff. And a lot of it has to do with somatic experiencing, how our our cells and biology react to trauma and how our issues live in our tissues. And that comes from your personal experience as a child. And I just want to, you know, hop right into what was your childhood like? So one of the things they say about researchers is that very often we do something called me search, right? I I get into a field. This is my personal story. I got into this field because of my history. So I come from very extreme childhood sexual abuse. I was raped and nearly killed when I was not quite seven, a month shy of my seventh birthday. And then on my seventh birthday or when my parents were celebrating it, my father started to sexually abuse me because I had been raped and nearly murdered. I knew what sexual assault was when my father started to abuse me, but I didn't have the language. I did live on a hog farm. And so I understood making babies a hog farm, but you're also Jewish. And I'm Jewish, Jewish. Yes, my my parents were Jewish hog farmers, and you know I often share that. And it's very much part of my story because I'm like I don't think they're making the best decisions, right? Or or at least not making decisions that were consistent with their values. And I think that's important because that's the family that I come from, right? I'm like, okay, so we're very, very Jewish, but also we raise pigs, you know, which my mother did get permission from the rabbi to raise them as long as we didn't eat them. Of course, we ate them. You oh, know? you did eat them? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, of course. I was assuming you didn't. So that's really interesting, too. No, there would be no problem if we didn't eat them, right? You can you can certainly sell things to, to people who are not Jewish, right? But no, no, we ate them. So, of course, we were then, you know, not the biggest fans at the synagogue, right? I mean, people treated me well because I was a child. But, you know, we were kind of on the outs and, you know. So, yeah. So, I come from a very isolated background. Because the other thing about hog farms is you don't put them in the center of the town because they don't smell that nice. So we were isolated. And then from the little bit of community that I did have, we were also isolated both by the fact that we had hogs and also by the fact that we were way out in the country. So I didn't have, even if I had wanted to tell my mother what was happening, I did not have that language. Did you have, so like if you didn't have the language for that, might you have had the language to say someone hurt me? Like, why didn't you feel safe enough to say, mom, someone just really hurt me. I'm hurting. Yeah, I'm injured. What, well, so I didn't, I didn't really trust my mom. So that's why I say, even if I had had the language, which I did not have, I also, the way my trauma manifested is that I retreated. I, first of all, I, I'm terribly dissociative. It's only been in very recently in the last two or three years that I've not been extremely dissociative. So like I said, about a month after I had been assaulted at a public pool is where I was assaulted. My mother and brother had gone to town to get a birthday cake for my birthday. It would have been a, it, would have, it was a Saturday because I remember it's Saturday morning cartoons. And we would have celebrated my birthday on the weekend, even though that year my birthday was probably on a Monday or Tuesday or something, but we would have celebrated on the weekend. And so my mom and, and brother were gone. And when my father moved his hand to the small of my back, and I won't go any further than that, but I knew, wait a minute, this is like that, not that assault, not like a normal caress. And I remember the first few seconds of the actual assault, and then I'm gone for three years. Even now, I still have amnesia for most of that three-year period. I went to very extreme dissociation. I went to, I don't want to be here. I don't know how to be here. And I don't know how to feel my feelings. I had a very interesting experience at the end of the abuse. My father had a girlfriend. I problematized that because she was a prostitute, but he called her his girlfriend. I think she called him a John, but that's for, <laughs> that, that's for them. That's not right. for me. But I was, uh, my mother had decided at the very, the very last few months of her marriage to my father, she was like, he wanted an open marriage. She did not, but she thought to try to save the marriage, she would do that. It lasted, I don't know, a few months and then 
she was out. But my mother would go to work and his girlfriend would come over during the day because she was sort of his day girlfriend. And then she went off and and turned tricks at night. And she found me washing my sheets on, again, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, whatever it was, before school. She's like, wait a minute, 10-year-old girls don't wash their sheets before school. So she saw what the situation was. She looked me right in the eye and she said, he will never touch you again. And he didn't. But that's also where my memory comes back. Mm, yeah. And and I think it's important to note that people who have periods of amnesia often have significant trauma. And it's very common for our brains to find if we can't escape as little kids, we find ways to escape. And that's actually where, as you know, dissociative identity, formerly multiple personalities is like our brain does all these different tricks to try to keep us safe, even if that means cutting our brain away from our body or creating a new person, whatever that needs to be. Well, and that's interesting because yes, to all of that. And When my father abused me the first time, and I've written about this in some of my in some of my books, my memory of that, again, I remember the first two, three seconds, and then I am out and seeing the whole thing from a tree that was outside of their bedroom window. And I am sitting there disembodied. This is my how my memory is disembodied with my mom's cat and watching And I see, I do not identify myself as the child in the scene. I see her as the little dead girl. Okay. That's how I see her as the little dead girl. Cause there's nothing happening there. And at the end of the experience, this is how this has always been the memory. I fly back down, look her in the eye and then decide to re-inhabit the body. So when I overdosed, I have the exact, I was dead and they were trying to bring me back and I'm standing watching the scene in my closet. So I'm like watching it. I see me CPR, the whole thing. And then the next thing I know, I'm in my body staring up at this, at this person. And, and it's interesting that you say that because I haven't actually heard very many people talk about that. And I, I, I always thought maybe I imagined it or, you know, it's not super common, but I do remember making the decision to go back in. Mm, Interesting. To go back in. That I looked at her because to me, again, she's dead. You know, I I don't know if there was a heartbeat or not. Uh, You know, again, I'm turning seven on Tuesday. So who knows? Right. But that was my experience. The other part about DID, about dissociative identity disorder, as you said, formerly called multiple personalities. I do not have that. But I have to say there is a part of me that little girl part of me that does not reach that standard for, you know, according to the DSM-5, but that little girl part of me who I call tall, she has her own name, is more than little Connie in my internal experience. Interesting. Yeah. And when I do not, this has not happened since I've used somatic experiencing, somatic therapies, but when I feel really vulnerable when I am scared, that's who is really running the show because this adult part of me recedes back. You wouldn't know any different. This part of me, and I'm not changing my name or anything like that, but this part of me recedes back and that scared, feral little girl who will, excuse my language, cut a bitch. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. She is the one who you are dealing with. Yeah. And so I really do relate to people who have DID because I understand through my own experience how that would happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I started to learn about like the intricacies of how that works, I'm like, it makes perfect sense. And, and it's always interesting to me dealing with like, I have points of memory loss and I, I don't know if you have this experience, but I remember remembering. I don't know if that's a... Oh, like, sure. Yeah. I was in seventh grade. My parents had divorced. And I was in a little country school in rural Oregon. And so the bus rides are long. Everybody rides the bus and the bus rides are long. Like you're going out to everybody's house, you know. <laughs> so I'm on the bus and, you know, you sit there and you're thinking, what else are you going to do? You're on a country bus ride on a little, you know, it, we're not, it's not like a, you know, Amtrak bullet train or something. You're putt, putt, putting around the countryside. And I was always so terrified of being attacked, of being raped, of being sexually assaulted, whatever. Terrified of it. And then I'm on the bus and I was like, oh, wait a minute. You're afraid of it because it's already happened. Like there was this real, I'm looking out at the, you know, fields of Oregon, right? And I'm like, it's already happened. 
And I can't remember the details of it, right? But I can feel the experience. I have a lot of body memories. So I can feel the experience in my body. And I'm like, I don't understand what it is until that moment. And I very distinctly remember and saying, oh, that's why you're afraid because it's already happened. Right. It's really bizarre. It's it's really, I don't know about you, but for me, it's played mind games with me my whole life. The memories would all just get really crazy. And then, but my body always responded the same way. My body always knows. Let's talk about sobriety, right? Recovery, because I went to alcohol. So I, my parents divorced. My mother moved us up to rural Oregon and I'm 11. We hadn't lived there very long. I was out in the barn doing chores. And one day I just decided I'm going to go drink. Now, my mom had a little bit of liquor in the house that nobody ever drank. It was up above the uh, refrigerator, in that you know cabinet above the refrigerator. Nobody ever drank it. My mom's not a drinker, but we had it just in case, right? Somebody came over. So I went and I took an inch out of every one into a big glass and I stood over the sink. I pinched my nose because God knows it's going to taste like death. And I drank it down. And I mean, I was instantly drunk and I rinsed it out and I put the the glass out and I put the bottles away and I went back out to the barn and I laid in the hay and I was like, this is how I want to feel forever. And in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the founder, Bill, he says, I drank for oblivion. And I really related to that because I did not know how to deal with my feelings, both my emotions and the feelings in my body, because I would get 20, 30, 40 in rapid succession feelings, physical experiences of that first moment of being attacked. So I'm having these physical experiences. When I drank, I would feel the index finger on my left hand with my fingers of my right hand. And when it felt like wood, right, when sensation was really gone, that's what I was going for. That's what I wanted. And you can't do that. So when you go to a 12-step program, which that's, that is how I got sober. I just celebrated uh, 24 years a month ago. Congratulations. Thanks. You know, I've been sober a long time, half my life, been sober half my life. And a sponsor, whoever's hel- or whoever's helping you with step work, they don't have the qualifications to deal with trauma. And so these alcohol and drug programs are very clear, especially the 12-step program. If you need he- outside help, seek it out. Because when I would tell, I could tell my story to my sponsors and they would weep. And I was like, what's wrong what's wrong with you? And they're like, well, but this be on my pay grade, honey. You know, I can help you stop drinking. I, I had a good friend, had a good friend. He's been dead 24 years now. Uh, Marcel, who was sober and he was taking me to a, a meeting and he turned and looked at me and he said, I know what happened and there's recovery from that. I swear, absolute truth. I, he had a convertible and I was If I didn't have the seatbelt, I would have jumped out of the car. I'm like literally trying to get the seatbelt on so I can escape him. Like that's the length to which I could not accept what had happened. Like it was so brutal and disgusting that I was like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Incest at that level is that's really severe, right? That's really severe. There was a lot of dysfunction going on. And I have to wonder about how your mom, like, did you ever revisit with her what her perspective was or if she was curious about things? No. Okay. No, no. My perception, my mom has her own issues as an adult. And this is a hundred percent speculation. As an adult, I think my mother had to know on some level. And I think she sacrificed me to get away. That's my perception. But I believe if I asked my mother about it now, she would honestly say, I didn't know. Because my mother's way of being is also like me, right? To get away from the truth. I remember my mother hit me once, slapped my face. And I was like, why did you do that? Because I didn't feel like I, I'm pretty mouthy. So there were times where she'd slap me and I'd be like, I do not believe that you cause it. But I'm like, yeah, I could see why that would be the response to that kind of mouthiness. Right. But she slapped me one, and I was like, why did you do that? I mean, there's still a little bit of a mark. She didn't hurt me, but there was still just a littlest bit of pink. Right. From I'm like, why did you do that? And she's like, do what? And I swear in that moment, she had already suppressed the fact that she hit me. Interesting. So wow. I okay. don't I don't find any value for me. And this is 
strictly for me in trying to push my mother on the issue, try to get closure, whatever. You know, when they say your parents did the best they could and maybe that wasn't enough. I, for my family, I truly believe that. I think my mom did the best she could and it really wasn't enough, but I don't think she has the capacity to be useful to me in that way. And I think it would just hurt her. I also, you know, I found my own work to be very effective. I'm working with a practitioner now who really does somatic experiencing. I mean, that's really her her forte. I find that she can process with me those mother things. And she's taken me, you know, to a place of like with my dad, you know, there's a time I, I, you know, wanted to kill him. He died when I was 22. And that helped me to get sober because I didn't, I realized he died very suddenly of a heart attack. And a few days later, I was already an alcoholic, but I was drinking a lot more. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. This isn't about him. See, I thought I drank because I was scared of him. But then he died and I drank more. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. You're just an alcoholic. This doesn't have anything to do with him. But what I've come to in the last few years is I feel tremendous pity for my father. I lived with his parents until both of them died. So the last seven years of my grandfather's life and last 14 years of my grandmother's life. And I found after grandma died, his adoption papers. He was not their biological child. He was adopted at 18 months. I had never thought about it before. There are no baby pictures of him. My grandfather was a photographer. Tons and tons of pictures, but no baby pictures. Oh, what happened to him in the first 18 months of life? They took him to a psychiatrist, which was not done in the 50s. And the psychiatrist said, I don't know what diagnosis he was given at that time, but the psychiatrist like, there's nothing I could do. Maybe if you'd brought him in when he was two or three, maybe we could have helped him. So this is a man who had trouble all his life. He had some sort of affection for my mother. He definitely had some sort of affection for me. And he ruined those relationships. He wanted to have a, a business cleaning company. And he asked my grandparents for an outrageous amount of money to do that. And they said, no, the way you get that company, they're like, we'll give you, you know, a little bit of money to like, you know, buy a vacuum cleaner type, you know, industrial vacuum cleaner type of deal. But they're like, you get that by working, not by us just buying you a business that somebody else has already built. And he was like, yeah, I'll show you, which would have thrilled my grandfather to no end if he had been successful. And he had a heart attack and died on a business floor alone. And nobody, his parents didn't go to his funeral. His brother didn't go to his funeral. I didn't go to his funeral. My brother went and represented the entire family. Wow. Nobody went. A lot of the time when people are abused and that person dies, it's a very conflicting and they Huge. were close to them. It's this weird, they're upset. They're sad, they're happy, they're upset, they're happy. Can you talk a little bit about some of the feelings that came up that are normal for people when their abuser dies? Yeah. So, you know, again, I want to say I'm to the point now where I, I feel pity for him. What a horrible, sad life. Short family doesn't give a shit about you. And then you die and even your you know kids don't want to come to your funeral. I mean, it's really sad. For me, when he died, now I was actively drinking, so there's a lot of shutdown, but I got sober or tried to start getting sober about five or six months later. So he died in April and November. I'm already in a 12-step program. And I'm doing, you know, it's been pointed out to me, yeah, you probably are an alcoholic. I'm trying to do controlled drinking. I'm trying to stop drinking on my, you know, all of that kind of blah, 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 that we go through. It's really clear to me, though, that I can't stop drinking. So what I found in terms of my emotions is that what really broke my heart was the loss of what might have been. Because the dream of the child is that somehow, some way, he will become the father that I want and need. And I think that's why I was so attracted to my friend Marcel, because they were about the same age and Marcel was grumpy. He was really grumpy and he was very heavy and, you know, had a, a full beard. I mean, he kind of looked in a certain way like my dad. And, and so I was like, hmm, I think this is what my dad might have been like if he had recovered, if he had had what, and, and he wasn't an alcoholic, but whatever his own recovery journey might have been, like it might have looked like this. So the loss of 
the idealized father was the hardest for me to deal with. The other part that was hard is because, like I said, I, you know, I have that tall. Tall means do in Hebrew. So if you have this, oh, do, and like, you know, I sort of like in my idealized mind, I'm like, oh, like a little, no, no, tall is like wild haired, usually, you know, in my mind, naked or just in, you know, underpants about six years old, doesn't usually talk, mostly screams, definitely will bite you, like might take a bath, maybe, I don't know, probably yeah. not, you know, like <laughs> fair, like feral, like that's right. how I, I see that part of me was always terrified that he was coming back. And I remember in the period where I just couldn't, it was about two and a half years before I got this sobriety date and where I just couldn't, I was mostly sober, but you know, still drank from time to time because the trauma symptoms would come up and be so horrific. And there was not good trauma treatment at that time. Talking about the mid nineties, there just wasn't great trauma treatment that any of us knew about. It would just get to the point where I just couldn't deal with the trauma anymore. And I drink a little bit to try to tamp that down and then try to stop drinking again. And She'd be terrified, you know, and I'd remember would I'd be in my room, locked doors, windows, you know, uh, curtains drawn, praying that he wasn't coming and then reminding myself he's been dead three years. He's dead. He's not coming back. And there was part of me that just I went and found on a whim one day. I went and found his grave. To like comment it. To try to tell myself. Like it was a it was a four hour drive to it. Thank God it was in a small town and there's only one cemetery. And I, you know, went to the cemetery and a police officer was like, What are you doing? Because I'm like wandering around like a crazy person. Happened upon his grave because I couldn't accept that he was gone. Terrified. Did people who worked with you, sponsors or people you talked to, when you would talk to them about, I'm really struggling to stay, you know, whatever, I'm struggling to stay sober because of these trauma symptoms, obviously you probably use different language, but were they like, you're just not trying hard enough? You're just not working the steps hard enough? No, no, no. When I would do my fifth step, because, you know, what's my part in it? They're like, nothing like that's no, that's not how it works. Every sponsor I ha- I've had when I was trying to get sober and then in the first 10 years of my sobriety, I had the first, same sponsor the first 12 years of my current sobriety. Every one of them said, this is beyond 12 steps. And this is, they're like, I love you and I want to support you. And what, but we need to find you a therapist. Every one of them, because, you know, I have always been, and I'm fortunate in this, I have always been attracted to the people in recovery who are very into what the book says. And the book is very clear that we can help you to find a spiritual experience. But if you have a physical problem, if you have a psychological or emotional problem, or if you have a spiritual, you know, desire to grow, that you need to seek outside resources. And it's very clear, right? If you have a spiritual, you know, like we don't hold the the only road to a higher power. And if we encourage you to have some sort of religious affiliation, if that works for you, seek out a rabbi, seek out a priest, seek out a, you know, whatever. So I have, I have been very fortunate to have had that kind of support. I also, my sponsor for the, for the first 12 years of my current recovery, she, her mother is a psychotherapist. So we were not of the variety that were like, well, you can't take medication. It was, you know, her mom and, and, and my therapist was like, actually, you probably really do need some pharmaceutical intervention and I, which I took for years. And then at some point I didn't need it anymore. Can you talk about what somatic experiencing is and then what the therapy actually looks like? Somatics really means it's in the body. It's in my body. And, you know, there's a the beautiful book, The Body Keeps the Score, right? That, you know, all of us who have trauma, everybody read it. And so let's take it out of clinical terms. Let's just talk about what it is so that people can understand it. The idea is that in the body, trauma gets stored. So if you see a bird that gets attacked by a predator and gets away, it will immediately go under a rock shelf, under a bush, whatever, someplace protected. It will puff its feathers out and it will shake. Traditional healers have observed this and they call it, at least in Namibia, where where I was working at one point, they call it shaking medicine. The idea of shaking medicine is, is trauma gets stored in the body and we need to loosen it up so that it passes through. There's something called trauma release exercises, TRE, that 
triggers a a tremor, a shaking to move these feelings through. There's also some medical studies called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this says that all kinds of traumas, right? It isn't just childhood sexual abuse. All kinds of traumas get stored in the body and they don't just produce psychological problems, but also all sorts of physical problems as well and, and can, can shorten your life, which I found very interesting because I had idiopathic, meaning no known reason, uterine disease and had to have a hysterectomy about, I don't know, 10, 10, 11 years ago now, whatever it is. Out of, out of nowhere. I started hemorrhaging and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, they're like, yeah, we don't know why. I had a tiny fibroid, very small fibroid. They're like, it shouldn't be bleeding this much. But I, you know, at this point I'm, I guess it was 39 when I had the ablation and 40 when I had the, had the hysterectomy, but the ablation didn't take, like the ablation always takes. They're like, well, we got to take it out. The doctor has no reason. They're like, there's no medical reason I can see. I'm like, I know, because I had all that trauma. Where is it going to store? It's going to store in your pelvic floor. It's going to store in your uterus. Like, I'm like, I, yeah, it makes sense to me. Fortunately, I didn't want to have children. And by that point, I probably wasn't going to have them anyway. What I work with, the radical aliveness, the first thing that I had to be taught by my practitioner was how to stay present. Because here's the big problem with trauma. Trauma is essentially... An experience of being stuck in the past. That's why that part of me, that little girl part of me, tall, could be like, he's coming, he's coming. He, and I'm like, baby, he dead. <laughs> he's not, oh. no, he coming. And my body was prepared for that. And when I would deny that and be like, no, he's dead, then I'd start having the body memories, which is a different form of flashback, right? A flashback that we normally think about is like a movie, right? In our head, you're like, oh yeah, I remember when that happened. This is actually feeling it in my body. I don't see anything because I have amnesia, right? So I don't see, you know, what his face looked like or anything like that. I feel it in my body. So the first thing I had to learn to do was not dissociate. That it's so interesting and a lot of parallels in, in, in my story as is in yours. And what was interesting that I found out was that I actually, in order to be eligible for EMDR, I had to, I had to take a, a test. I forgot what it was called, an assessment for dissociation and that I had to work on my dissociation before I was eligible for EMDR because it was, I was so good at removing myself from these things. And for me, I don't know if this is an experience you've had, but um, I will get sick. I will, my back will go out. I will have all all these crazy physical symptoms and people will be saying to me who love me, they're like, you're very stressed. You're very this, this is going on. You're very upset. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am fine. This is just whatever. And my back, my a disc will slip, like something will happen physically that will incapacitate me before I even know that I'm having emotional responses. I'm so disconnected from my body. It has to like wake me up and then, and then and I go, oh, I'm, ups-, you know, <laughs> oh, whatever it is. Now it's just trying to get the space between the two things. I just try to get them closer because because it's it's so hard to feel something I don't feel. Right. Because you don't. I think that's important because we genuinely don't feel it. I want to confirm all of that. <laughs> yes. Even though I am a huge advocate for EMDR, I think it is an amazing treatment. I have never actually done it because I am too dissociative. I probably could do it now, although I don't need it in the same way now. So I had to learn how to be present. You know, when I first started, I mean, I really melted down when I first started somatics and I would call her every day, every day. That's not how it's supposed to go. Like you're supposed to be actually stable between sessions and like have a one hour, two hour session a week. No, no. And I remember I was, she's actually in uh, Orange County, California. And so, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm in a different state. And I, but I was in Orange County and I was going to have, I was working and then I was going to have a session with her and get on the airplane and leave. And while I was shaving my legs, which I do all the time, my back went out, like literally. And I went sobbing to the appointment. I was like, I can't move, you know? And she's like literally pulling my suitcases out of the Uber, you know, and like putting them in the front because I could not do it. Yep. It's a pretty 
scary experience in a lot of ways. You live your life watching other people experience emotions you're supposed to be experiencing when they hear you say that again, because I think this is so important for people to realize both if you love someone, care about someone who has trauma, because they're like, you're cold. You're cold. I am not cold at all. I just don't know how to emote that to you. And I'm a few beats behind in my feelings. I have two godchildren. They live in Australia. I adore those kids. And I'm like, they're, you know, kind of like weird auntie because they're like, you're a little bit dark and goth and, you know... They got me a candle once in the shape of a cat. And when you melt it, the cat's skeleton is under. It's like plastic, right? But the skeleton is underneath. And they're like, auntie needs this. And I was like, you know me. You see me. Like, yes, yes. Like all the things, right? Actually, I've never burned it because I just, I'm like this present, like epitomizes like our relationship. I love those kids. But in the moment, like when they're in the room with me, I don't feel it. The second they leave the room, I'm like, oh, they're gone. No, you know, because it's too risky. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For me to feel to to be there. And so this is this is really common where we're like, you know, two beats behind or we're perceived as cold or whatever. So the steps are right. So first I learn how to stay and just be there. Just be present. My first therapist who I had in my very early sobriety, so we're talking in the 90s and the early aughts, been seeing her for like 10 years when I finally stopped seeing her. And she's like, you know, you've come a long way in terms of, she's like, I'd see you just dissociate and just be gone. And there's, and you're so fast. There's nothing I can do. And I'd come, come out of it and I'd, you know, and be like, oh, where are we been? You know, oh yeah, we were in therapy. So the first thing I had to learn was to, to be present. The second thing is when those emotions did start to come out. And then from there, for the last few years, we've been working on two things. Number one, identifying the emotion. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I can give you a ballpark. The second thing is, what are you feeling in your body? Which usually is still nothing or very little. For you, it's still nothing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm still not super physically connected in that way. I'll be like, "Mm, I'm feeling something here. And then my practitioner gives me some choice. I'm like, could you help me out with some choice? Now, I'm a writer. I don't generally need someone to feed me words. <laughs> yeah. She'll be like, so are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you rageful? Like, you know, like, you know, sort of in the same group. And I'll be like, mm-hmm. Let me get back to you. I I don't know. I have a list. I have like a the worksheet that has all the feelings. Oh sure. And, and what I always my issue is I'm always she's like honey that's a thought not a feeling <laughs> all the time all the time yeah 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 it feels like a, this thought feels like a feeling right right so the thing for me and and I've had traditional therapists say the same thing is can we have some conversation that does not end at your chin. Mm. That's a good, yep. And I'm like, there's a reason I went to college for nearly a decade, like, and got all these degrees. I'm real good. Yep. Real good at this. This? I don't know. How did that work as you came of age and started to seek intimacy and sexual interactions on your own? So I was terrified of men. And I, as I say for myself, unfortunately, am not a lesbian. (laughs) I really do wish I ran that direction. I just don't. And I remember being drunk once and crying to my my very dear friend. Her girlfriend had gone to, we were at a bar, the three of us, she and her girlfriend, and her girlfriend went to the bathroom and I started crying literally in my beer, right? She's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I want to be a lesbian. And she's like, well, do you like, do you like girls? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, I can't help you. <laughs> she's like, I can't help with that. So I was terrified of men. And I had such bad hypervigilance. Like if, you know, someone came up and tapped me on the shoulder, I'd whip around and knock your teeth out. And also my father had given me what I thought at the time was a very good piece of information. I overheard him saying once, I don't remember where this came from, but I overheard him saying once, I 
don't want to have sex with fat women. Because I don't think my father was a pedophile. I think I was just available. I think I just out in the country and there, you know, there wasn't any, there literally was not anybody else there. You know, I think he preferred, and I think his preference was for women, which I think is why he had prostitutes because they're, you know, easy. You just have to have the money. But, you know, I heard, hmm, doesn't like to have sex. Well, this is good information. So I started eating, you know, every you know, cupcake a person could get their hands on. And when I got sober, I gained 70 pounds the first year and another, I don't know, 50 in like the year after that. I did not know, truly did not know that I could say no. I had been assaulted by so many men that my feeling was just given to say yes, because then they won't hurt you, like harm you. When I got sober, And I did not know that no was an option. I just started gaining weight hand over fist because I thought that no one would touch me. And I was so dissociative until very recently that I did not like it. Now, everything works, right? I can climax and all the things. Like everything operates appropriately. But unless I just absolutely knew and trusted you. Like, I'm not going to go out on a date. Like, you're not going to set me up on a blind date. Even now, that's no. That's no. Because my body will shut down. And I can't protect myself that way. I just didn't date. I mean, I have to be honest. And I write about this in in some of my books. If you were male in between the ages of 12 and 80, (laughs) kind of weren't going to be in my life. Now, if you were super gay, super gay, you could be in, right? Anyone who doesn't pose a threat. When I started doing somatics, I'm working with an organization. It's all men and me. And I had said something about to one of the guys who I was very, you know, close with. I I said, and I was close with him because he was a stage performing musician and has a very specific look that he likes and I'm not it. So I trusted him. He wasn't going to touch me. I said, yeah, you know, men don't like big women. And he looked at me and he's like, that's not true. He's like, heavy women get assaulted all the time. There are tons of men who like women who look like you. See, I thought that if I became like just a huge mound of flesh that was like essentially so big, you just couldn't get to the goods, you know, that I would be safe. How did you incorporate narrative therapy and how did that help with the healing process? So let's take the word therapy off of it. And let's just use narrative because I want to encourage people to use resources. I certainly like therapy and I encourage getting support. Please hear that. But there are a lot of hours between therapy appointments and there are resources that we can use. So let's take therapy off of If you want to use narrative therapy, that's fine. What is narrative? Narrative is stories. Our brains are designed to create stories. We have to find meaning in the world in order to live in it. So, you know, I heard my father say, you know, I don't want to sleep with fat women. And so the sto- my story became fat is safe. Again, I'd already started in the somatics. I'm already starting to feel safer in my body. That's the first place. I have to be able to be present in my body. Once I got that and I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm safer being fat. And he's like, that's not true. Oh, actually, it's not true. I lost 75 pounds. It just fell off. And it stayed off for over four years because I was safer at 250 and mobile and strong than I was at 325 and sick and not as strong as I could be and not as mobile, not as quick, all those things. So I work with people on what are those stories that we tell ourselves because we take all the little facts around us and we make stories out of them. And that is your truth. So I don't work with truth with a capital T. Like I don't know the secrets of the universe. But I work with little T-truths. And is it true enough? Like there was an, I saw enough truth in, I'm actually better off, safer, healthier, thinner. I am not safer, fatter. And I turned on a dime and did something different. My body literally released that extra weight. And so that's what I encourage people to, like, is it true enough for you to be able to make a change? So I have to look for opportunities to rewrite my story because whatever you believe is true is true. I work with people all the time, you know, who are recovering from addiction. And if you believe you can't recover, there's nothing I can do to help you. If you believe it might be possible, then let's try some stuff. That's why I love the idea of narrative. If you change your story, you change your life. And you can do that through journaling. You can do that through different, you know, uh, thought processes. There are all sorts of different ways to do it. Personally, I just like to pay attention when 
people are giving me information. And when someone says that's not true, I try it on. If someone says, you know, you're a terrible worker, I try that on. I don't feel the truth in that. No, I'm actually really dedicated and, and do my best and, and, and give more than is expected. And so, nope, that's not, that's not part of my truth. But, oh, you don't have to hit any man that comes within arm's length of you? I don't? No, because they're actually not going to hurt. They're not? And then as soon as I realized it wasn't true, my world changed. I work with music a lot. And music is wonderful because singing in particular, playing music, but singing. And when I say singing, please, no judgment. Your brain does not know if you sing flat or off key or, you know, what tone deaf. Your brain does not know. But what happens when you sing is that serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin are all dumped in your brain and you feel better. In addition, the entire brain lights up. So you feel better. Now, you know this is true because if you've had a bad day and you are driving in your car and you're stuck in traffic and a song you like comes on the radio and you do your own carpool karaoke and you sing like you don't care if somebody can hear you outside, which they can't, but you sing like you don't care, you feel better. Now, imagine you're in an addiction treatment facility and your brain is not because, you know, normal brain, let's assume you and I both have normal brain, right? It's got its chemicals the right way. It goes from here to here and you feel better. In an addiction treatment facility, because you've been using chemicals for so long, you're down here. Can't even see it on the screen. Then you start singing. Boom. You actually get a natural high. Well, now you want to participate in uh, your rehab program more efficiently. You want to do that again. But also when the whole brain lights up, you break that feedback loop because what is trauma? Stuck in the past. What is addiction? Stuck in a feedback loop of I need to get my drug. I need to get my drug. I need to get my drug. So music, when you sing, it breaks up that thought process. So you feel better and we start rewiring the brain in different ways. I was in Kenya and there was an elderly man who was dying. Natural causes, he's just old. And the community wasn't quite ready to let him go. And he was in a little hut in his boma and the community came out and they started singing. He got up off his deathbed and walked out. He lived a couple more months. It's connection that is more important than any one of these activities. I wrote a book in 2012. It was um, second edition in 2014 called Ending Addiction for Good. And it talks about a whole bunch of complementary therapies that were used in an addiction treatment center in Malibu. What we learned at that facility is that any one of these therapies, by and large, useless. They might make you feel a little better. They might help you a little bit. But if you look at any research of people who go only to acupuncture, only to psychotherapy, only do journaling, only do music, their outcomes are bing, if, if anything. But when you braid all of these things together as a lifestyle, that's why I was like, take therapy off of narrative and let's talk about what you can just do at your home. You can sing in your home while you are making dinner, hum, dance around. You will feel better. These little things are more than the sum of their parts. All of these therapies are more than the sum of their parts. And... Going back to, you know, the rat studies, right? If you put rats and they, they want to drink all the, all the cocaine water or the heroin water. But if you put them in a rat amusement park with other rats, they don't. So the recovery from addiction is not sobriety. That's a tool we use. Abstinence is just a tool I use. The recovery from addiction or trauma is in connection. With other people. With other people. When I'm alone, out of my mind, dissociated on my closet floor, that's not recovery, right? That's being trapped. One of the things that, that I talk about a lot on this podcast in particular is that community is not an option. It's not optional. No. To it is not optional. You must. Now you can have whatever community you want, but if you are going to stay sober, you have to have some sort of supportive, healthy community. It is not optional to be connected with people on a daily basis. You won't recover alone. I love the message 
too, because it really incorporates that the complementary therapies that this is a, a holistic. It is a, you have to do all of it in order to make it work. The blender does not work just by turning on the button. You need to have the blade. You need to have, you know, the whole, the pitcher, you got to have the whole thing in order to make this work. And otherwise you just kind of have these parts that are, I guess, nice to have and might be useful for something. Well, and it's not, yes, I love that analogy. And it's not just the blender. You can get the same result using a different tool. Right. Right. It might not look like a blender, but it's going to have a knife and it's going to have some chopping and it's going to have some mashing. And so those other types of tools are also valid. I have had the very good fortune to travel very broadly. And I have, for whatever reason, been invited to participate in so many different things. You know, people saw my pain and responded. I remember I was 17 years old and the Girl Scouts in my area, I've been a Girl Scout since I'm four years old. The Girl Scouts in my area were invited to a powwow and I went and Although we were invited to dance, I felt like, no, I need to be respectful and, and whatever. And that wasn't, I didn't feel like that was my place. But a woman saw me and invited me to drum in her drum circle. I was 17. I'm going to be 50 this year, right? So this is 33 years ago. And it still make. I was so included in that. And I felt that magic of the community connecting. It was not my community. I was included. The same thing in Namibia, the same thing in India, the same thing, all these different places that I've been. And so I know that not only is my way not the only way, but it isn't always going to be the best for you, whoever you are. And I want you to have whatever is best. Who you are has value. And the construct of the world that you have created is true. If you believe that the world is supported by a turtle, listen, if that if your life is great and you have that worldview, who am I to say? My people believe that, that a guy parted the sea. Okay. <laughs> if that's your worldview, though then I want to support that because that's where you will find your health and your best emanation of yourself. The Dalai Lama said most of us stick with the religion that we were born into, and there's no problem with that. And so I take that out, not just our religion, but our whole cosmology, our whole way of seeing the world, our whole group of perceptions. If you don't say Kaddish for your father's yard site, pick me. I have experience with that. If you're not from that system, then I want to do my research to help you find where your system is. I want to help the things that work. I don't have any other interest. I love that. I love that. A mentor once said to me, I want to do important things. I'm here to do important things. I love that. You know, coming up on a, you know, milestone birthday, we don't have a ton of time. And I certainly have done the best I can with the time I've had. And, and I'm so grateful for my recovery because that's a miracle that anyone with trauma has the opportunity to get through any of it and, and to be really present. I get to be present in my life, but it is a waste to me if I don't have one hand back pulling others in, whether that's recovery, whether that's to resources, whether that's to information, I don't care. Because I didn't get gifted with this to just knitting, you know, in my house by myself, <laughs> things that nobody needs, right? Like I want other people to have the opportunity for recovery that I have had. Full stop. Well, I really appreciate your time, all the time that you've given me and that you're giving the world doing important things. And, and I, I join you on this important things journey. And where can people find the literature that you've written about Rock to Recovery and your other books? So everything's on Amazon. I also have a website. It's just constantsharf.com.org.net, all the places. I'm also on all the socials, TikTok, Facebook. Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. What's all. your What's your TikTok? Uh, at Doctor Sharf. Okay. Okay. And again, at my website, it's all all the links are for all the things are there. So yeah, you can find my books. I've I've written a, a book of poetry, actually about recovering from trauma, called Meeting God at Midnight. So lots of things. All the links are on my website. Awesome. Thank you so so much. Really appreciate you and your time. I've had a lovely time. Thank you. All right. Well, that was intense. There's a lot in that story. I when when she talked about me search, 
I don't think I'd heard that term specifically like that before, but I was like, yep, that makes sense. That's the classic for like every field or whatever. I mean, for the, for the majority, someone has some connection. It's rare that someone completely randomly ends up where they are. It also makes them better at it. They have experienced some of the feelings and I think that makes a big difference. And, you know, she, her particular trauma is very extensive, but it isn't as rare as we'd like to think it is. And I think that's why it's important to share the story because people think, well, no one would understand what I've been through or, you know, I'll never be able to tell anyone or I'll never recover or whatever the thing is. And I think it's important for people like me who struggle with dissociation and like Constance to know that our dissociation was really a powerful, helpful tool for us. It was really important. It helped us get through that. And now as adults, we have to unravel it and it just takes time and effort and desire to do that. And we're we're not broken. We actually really had an adaptive mechanism there. And now we have a new life and a new experience and we have to adapt to that. And it's it's hard to unwire something that happened for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings up the kind of her, you know, her specialty, one of her specialties about somatics. So when I started to read more about how that stuff works and the body keeps the score is a really great resource to try to learn about some of this stuff. It actually started to make a lot of sense, but it had I not for me personally, had I not done that, I think I would have been less of a believer than because it would have looked so silly and like kooky and woo woo. But because I read about the stuff that goes on behind it, the woo woo, silly, whatever made perfect sense to me. And it was much easier to uh, go along with. So I, to anyone who struggles with that kind of thing like the somatic, where do you feel it in your body? And where do you like any of that stuff that feels very kooky and woo woo, whatever. I highly recommend you read about that because it will make perfect sense to you as you start to understand the science behind it. And then it'll feel less like you're, you know, doing witchcraft. I, of course, buy into it. It's just one of those where it's like, just at face value, you go, huh? It does oh, what totally. So what? I mean, you're, I'm at the what? place in my life where if you told me that you had some witchcraft that would work, rub me in your crystals, baby. I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> as I've gotten older, I'm like, I do not care. Like if you want to put me in an amethyst and you're like, that's going to heal your life, Ashley. I mean, that's a big amethyst. I'm just saying I am literally in the amethyst. She's, she's down. She's down. If any, if any listeners have a giant amethyst that we can kind of take turns sitting in, that would be pretty rad. We're ready. Put me in your geode, baby. I'm ready. (laughs) Heal me. I loved just also the piece of sort of all the complementary therapies and that, you know, done on their own, like they can be good things, but the, the power of combining all those sorts of things. Side note, did you sing that day? Because I sure did. Based on what she said, I was like, I do need to sing today. Like what it does to your baseline levels of everything when you sing with other people. And that very night, I have a karaoke machine in my house and my wife and I together did some karaoke in the basement and it was wow. great. That you did bad. karaoke in the basement with your wife? Yeah, we did. Not even that unusual for us to do. Just what happens. songs did you sing? Well, I always open with Zombie by the Cranberries. Oh, dear. So Zombie. Yeah. Zom- and you have to say it like it, that. On their tanks, on their <laughs> bombs, and their guns, and their guns. You have to say it like that, too. Oh my God. <laughs> I did it at a karaoke one time and people got off and they go, are you from the UK? And I was like, no, <laughs> I just sung it the way that I learned to sing this when I was 10 years old or whatever. When I heard this song for the first. So part of our complimentary medicine here is uh, just a laughter and the catharsis you have when you hate me for telling it. So, yes. OK, Ash, I'm uh, Thinking of having my ashes stored in a glass urn remains to be seen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my god. Is there like a website that's like baddadjokes.com? You know, that's the worst part of this that we came up with this idea is that I have to scroll through hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> you secretly love it to get just the bad joke that i'm looking for because there's different there's certainly different styles you know i oh. have a 
I have a very <laughs> complicated palate when it comes to this. You know, I'm looking for something. There's that cr- that particular cringe factor that I want, and not everyone can give me that. So, so you know, how many for every one dad joke that you tell on the podcast, how many does your wife have to hear? <laughs> I don't put her through it because she listens to the show. So I can't like if I uh... use it, you know, I want it to be just as painful for her as well. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wonderful woman listening to all these episodes and you know (laughs) she wanted to hit hit like the first time okay well yeah you know it's got to be a surprise it's got to be a surprise okay that means you are you're making these decisions all by yourself yeah there's no one else to blame for what's (laughs) happening i'm rogue i'm a rogue agent who is inflicting this collateral on people Oh. oh boy we're rooting for you this week we hope um this was a tough episode do something nice for yourself that would be great ash anything you want to leave them with sometimes after i listen to really serious stuff or or there's heavy emotion and i i go through the feelings of that it's great to put on a netflix comedy special or something funny or your favorite tv show So I highly suggest that if you had big feelings around this to feel those feelings, maybe journal about it and then blow off some steam with something funny, comedy, a swim, call with a funny friend, whatever it is. And on that note, have a wonderful week. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.